Section 7 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rood. The Rise and Spread of Christianity, A.D. 33, by Isaac M. Wise, Part 1. In the rabbinical literature, several successes of the apostles are noticed, especially at Capernaum and Capersamia. One of them is most remarkable, viz. the conversion of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrkin by the Apostle James. This rabbi, the Talmud narrates, was actually arrested by Roman officers, and, in obedience to the edict against Christianity, was accused of the crime of being a Christian, which he did not deny, although he repented it. The most important success, however, which the apostles could boast, was the conversion of Paul. The man whose colossal genius and gigantic energies grasped the pillars upon which the superstructure of Greco-Roman paganism rested, bent and broke them like rotten staves, till, with a thundering noise, down came the ancient fabric, with its gods, altars, temples, priests and priestesses, depositing debris that took centuries to remove and remodel. The man, whose hands were against all, and against whom were all hands, who defied the philosophy of the philosophers, the power of the priests, and the religions of the world, who was all alone, all in all. This man was Paul of Tarsus, the great apostle to the Gentiles, with an original gospel of his own. He kindled a fire in the very heart of the Roman Empire, under the eyes of the authorities of Rome and of Jerusalem, which, in a few centuries, consumed ancient heathenism from the Tigris to the Tiber, and from the Tiber to the Thames. With a skilful hand, he threw the sparks upon the accumulated combustibles of error, corruption, and slavery, and ancient society exploded to make room and furnish the material for a new civilization. The conversion of this man was the Apostle's great success. If it had not been for him, the nascent church, like other Jewish sects, would have perished in the catastrophe of Jerusalem, because the apostles did not possess that vigor and energy to resist the violent shock. In Paul, however, the spirit of John and of Jesus resurrected with double vigor, and he became the actual founder of the Christianity of history. Few and far apart are the brilliant stars in the horizon of history. Strike out a hundred names and their influence upon the fate of man, and you have no history. Those brilliant stars, however, did not always make history from their own wealth, from the original resources of their minds. Ideas which tens of thousands have held, without an attempt to carry them into effect, and others have unsuccessfully attempted to realize, in the right time and under favorable circumstances, are seized upon by an executive genius, and a new epoch in history is opened. The numerous minor spirits which contributed to the sum total of the creative idea, 
disappear in the brilliancy of the one star which remains visible in history the world is a machine shop each artificer makes the part of a machine one master mind combines the parts and he is known as the master machinist paul was one of those master machinists one of those brilliant stars in the horizon of history in him the spirit of jesus resurrected as eminently and vigorously as john had resurrected in jesus he was the author of gentile christianity he conceived the idea of carrying into effect what all the prophets all pious israelites of all ages hoped and expected the denationalization of the hebrew ideas and their promulgation in the form of universal religion among the gentiles to conciliate and unite the human family under the great banner inscribed with the motto of one god and one code of morals to all all jews of all ages hoped and expected that the kingdom of heaven should be extended to all nations and tongues but paul went forth to do it this is his particular greatness the circumstances of course favored his enterprise greco-roman paganism was undermined the gods stood in disrepute and the augurs smiled the state religion was an organized hypocrisy the learned believed nothing the vulgar almost everything if it was but preposterously absurd enough the progress of grecian philosophy and the inroads of judaism in the roman world were so considerable that royal families had embraced judaism and the emperor tiberius had found it necessary to drive the jews together with the egyptian priests from rome because their religion had its admirers in the very palace of the caesars as well as among priests nobles and plebeians all the devout gentiles whom paul met on his journeys were judaized greeks or syrians for the pharisees traversed land and sea to make one proselyte therefore when paul preached in asia minor cicero and cato had spoken in rome seneca and epictetus gave utterance to sentiments as nearly like those of paul and other jews as are the two eyes of the same head again on the other hand epicurism in its worst sequences sensualism in its most outrageous form the despotism and brutality of the caesars and their favorites had so undermined the moral sentiments and religious feelings of the masses that skepticism fraught with shocking vices and unnatural crimes coupled with contemptible hypocrisy and ridiculous superstition demoralized the masses and brought truth itself into ill repute to add to all this there came the steady decline of the jewish state the growing demonstration of fast approaching ruin and in consequence thereof the growth of superstition among the hebrews among whom a class of mystics sprang up who professed to know what god and his angels do speak and think in the secret cabinet of heaven where the throne of the almighty stands splendidly and minutely described by those mystics who supposed that they received superior knowledge by special impressions from on high without study or research on their part and expected to see the status 
of social and political affairs suddenly changed by miraculous interpositions of the deity without human exertion and cooperation. This state of affairs was highly favorable to Paul's stupendous enterprise. But who was Paul himself? Notwithstanding all the attempts of the author of the Acts to mystify him into as mythical a character as the Gospels made of Jesus, Paul is an open book in history. We have his genuine epistles, in which he gives considerable account of himself and his exploits. We have one portion of the Acts in which, contrary to the rest of that book, the author narrates in the first person plural, we, which appears to be taken from the notes of one of Paul's companions, Luke, Timothy, Silas, or any other. Then we have the Talmud, with its numerous anecdotes about Acre, as the rabbis called Paul, which are of inestimable value to the historian. These sources enable us to form a conception of the man. A few remarks on his life will be found interesting. Paul is not a proper name. It signifies the little one. The author of the Acts states that his name was Saul, but it appears he knew no more about it than we do, and changed the P of Paul into an S to make of it the Hebrew name Saul. In his epistles he invariably calls himself Paul and not Saul, so the author of the we portion of the Acts always calls him Paul. Passing under an assumed name, the rabbis called him Akr, another, i.e. one who passes under another or assumed name. They maintain that his name was Elisha ben Abujah, but this name must be fictitious because it is a direct and express reference to Paul's theology. It signifies the saving deity, son of the Father God, and Paul was the author of the Son of God doctrine. The fact is, he was known to the world under his assumed name only. Nothing is known of his youth, except a few spurious anecdotes recorded in the Talmud. When quite young, he studied the law and some Grecian literature at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, among the thousand students who listened to the wisdom of that master. He states that he was a very zealous Pharisee who persecuted the Christians, but all of a sudden he embraced the cause of the persecuted and became one of its most zealous apostles. We can easily imagine the nature of that persecution, although the Stephen story, like the Damascus story and the vision on the way, as narrated in the Acts, is spurious because Paul never alludes to it, and the Jews of Jerusalem had no jurisdiction in Damascus over anybody. But what caused his remarkable transition from one extreme to the other? First, a Pharisee with law and nothing but law, and then the author of the epistles, which reject and abrogate the entire law. Transitions of this nature require time and are wrought by violent agencies only. A number of stories narrated in the Talmud together with those of the Acts, point to the fact that the youthful Paul, with his vivid imagination, witnessed many an act of barbarous violence and outrageous injustice. 
occurrences of this nature were not rare under the military despotism of rome in judea the soil was saturated with innocent blood the world was governed by the sword and rome groaned under the unnatural crimes of her caesars there was universal depravity among the governing class and endless misery among the governed the rabbis give us to understand that this state of affairs misled paul into the belief that there was no justice in heaven or earth no hope for israel no reward and no punishment that the balance of justice was destroyed it is quite natural that under such circumstances such a skepticism should overpower young and sensitive reasoners king saul in a state of despair receiving no reply from the prophets none from the urim and thummim deeply fallen as he was went in disguise to the witch of endor gotha's faust in imitation thereof receiving no answer to his questions addressed to heaven and eternity no answer through his knowledge of nature's laws and nature's forces no answer from the philosophy of his century and the theology of his priests throws himself into the embrace of mephistopheles that is human nature exactly the same thing was done in the days of paul and exactly the same thing he himself did there was the indescribable misery of the age and there were the knowledge and theories of that overburdened century and no answer no reply to the questions addressed to heaven and eternity and they went to the fountains of mysticism and secret knowledge to quench the thirst of the soul there sprung up the visionary gnostics among the gentiles and the cabalistic mystics among the jews history notices the same rotation continually idealism sensualism skepticism and finally mysticism the mystic art among the hebrews then was of two different kinds either to attract an evil spirit or to be transported alive into paradise or heaven an evil spirit was attracted by fasting and remaining for days and nights alone in burial grounds till the brain was maddened and infatuated when the artificial demoniac prophesied and performed sundry miracles the transportation to heaven or paradise was more difficult the candidate for a tour into heaven would retire to some isolated spot fast until the brain was maddened with delirium and the nerves excited to second sight by the loss of sleep then in that state of trance he would sit down on the ground draw up his knees bend down his head between them and murmur magic spells until through the reverse circulation of the blood the maddened brain and the unstrung nerves he would imagine that he saw the heaven opening to his inspection palace after palace thrown widely open to his gaze hosts of angels passing within view until finally he imagined himself entirely removed from the earth transported aloft into those diamond palaces on high or as paul calls it caught up into paradise where he heard unspeakable words which it is not possible for a man to utter and the throne of god with all the seraphim and cherubim 
archangels and angels became visible and their conversation intelligible to the enraptured and transported mystic in a fit of hallucination when the bewildered imagination sees objectively its own subjective phantasma and hears from without in supposed articulate sounds its own silent thoughts it requires no stretch of the imagination to form a correct idea of the mystic eccentricities to which this awful practice must have led those who frequently indulged in it rabbinical mystics like modern trance speakers gave vivid descriptions of the interior splendor and grand sceneries of heaven and of the conversations of angels one of those descriptions is preserved in perk rabbi eliezer and others in various fragments of the talmud among those particularly noticed in the talmud as having been in heaven or paradise there is also Acher or paul who states so himself in his second epistle to the corinthians twelve that passage gave rise to the story of jesus appearing in person to paul just as the rabbinical mystics claimed to have had frequent intercourse with the prophet elijah who had been transported alive to heaven so paul passed the transition from the law school of the pharisees to the new school of mystics in this state of trance he discovered that central figure of the cabalistic speculation the metathron the co-regent of the almighty or as he otherwise was called the synadelphos the confrere of the deity or suriel the prince of the countenance whom the cabalists imagined to be the chief marshal or chief scribe in heaven who was once on earth as enoch or as elijah and was advanced to that high position in heaven it is the demiurge the highest magistrate in heaven whom the gnostic valentine calls a godlike angel and of whom the rabbis said his name is like unto the name of his master this central figure blended with the messianic speculations of that age with the doctrines of peter and the nascent church combined in paul's mind to one mystic conception of the son of god intelligible to pagan ears so he went forth and proclaimed jesus of nazareth the son of god in substance the expression is about the same as metathron and Senadelphos, and the office which paul ascribed to jesus is precisely of the same nature with that which the cabalists ascribed to the angel who was the sar haulam the prince or ruler of this world who stands before god or also sits before him as paul's jesus stands before god or sits at his right hand it is precisely the same in both systems the names only are changed so that it is difficult to decide whether paul was or the rabbis were the authors of the metathronic speculations especially as these two angels only have greek names while all others are hebrew or chaldean and later cabalists frequently put down joshua or jesus in the place of metathron those who believe that Acker's dualism of the deity was the persian ormuzd and ahriman hence a good and an evil principle and that metathron never was an evil demon 
are as decidedly mistaken as those who believe that Paul had more than one God. Paul's Son of God and Acker's Metathron are the same central figure before the throne of God, and the two authors are identical. In that world of secret thoughts, Paul discovered the harmonization of discordant speculations and the remedy for all existing evils. The world must be regenerated by a new religion was his great ideal. The ancient religions and the philosophies have produced the corruption which rages universally. They must be swept away. Society must be reconstructed on a new basis, and this basis is in the theology and ethics of Israel, separated and liberated from their climatical and national limitations, their peculiar Jewish garb. There was no hope left of saving the Jewish nationality and political organization from the hands of omnipotent Rome, which swallowed and neutralized kingdoms and nations with wonderful ease, nor was there any particular necessity for it if society at large was reconstructed on the new basis. The object of Jesus was to reconstruct the kingdom of heaven in Israel, and he was crucified. All Israel had the same object in view, and stood at the brink of dissolution. If the basis and principles of the kingdom of heaven became the postulate of society at large, Jesus is resurrected in the world, and Israel is saved, was Paul's main idea. The Pharisean rabbis hoped that this would come to pass at some future day, when, they maintained, all sacrifices and all laws would be abolished and all the nations of the earth would be one family, with one God and one moral law. Paul seized upon the idea, and added to it the simple dogma of Peter, the Messiah has come. That hoped-for future is now. God's promise to Abraham, and there shall be blessed by thee, and by thy seed all the families of the earth, is to be fulfilled at once. So he came forth from his mystical paradise, an apostle of Jesus, and a new redeemer of Israel. He argued exactly as the Pharisee and doctors did, who maintained that the Messiah would come when all mankind should be guilty or all righteous. In the estimation of Paul, at that particular time, all mankind was corrupt and demoralized, and so that was the time for the Messiah to make his appearance. He went to work at once. He began to preach his new Christianity at Damascus about the year 51, and found out that the world was not prepared for his ideas. He had a narrow escape at Damascus, where the governor and soldiers pursued him. Like the spies at Jericho, he was let down in a basket over the city walls and made his escape. So he narrates the story. The author of the Acts, true to his hostility to the Jews, of course brings them in as the persecutors. But Paul in general never speaks otherwise than with the highest regard and love of his kinsmen and his brothers according to the flesh. The failure at Damascus did not discourage Paul. It only convinced him that he was too young. He could not at that time have been much over twenty-one years that he was not sufficiently prepared for the great enterprise, 
that it was not such an easy task to throw down the superannuated heathenism and to reorganize society on a new basis. He retired into Arabia and remained there nearly three years to perfect a plan of operation. Nearly three years he spent in silent contemplation to discover the proper means to take the right hold upon the heathen world and to unfurl a new banner of heaven upon this wicked earth. In 53 or 54, we meet him again at Antioch with his new and original gospel, the gospel for the Gentiles, prepared for his mission and ready to embark in the great enterprise to wage active war upon all existing systems of religion and philosophy and to replace all of them by Paul's gospel. He had been in Jerusalem fifteen days, had conversed with Peter and nobody else, but he repeatedly tells us that he had taken advice of none, consulted none, was appointed by nobody, and learned nothing of anybody. The gospel was his gospel, and he was an apostle by the appointment of God Almighty himself, who had revealed his Son to him. In Antioch, he established the first congregation of Jews and Gentiles and called them Christians. So Paul was the actual author of Christianity among the Gentiles. What was Paul's gospel? Paul, setting out on his journeys with the great idea of converting heathens, was obliged to paganize the gospel. The heathens knew nothing of the Jewish Messiah, and he gave him the name popularly known among them. He called him the Son of God, which was a common name in mythology. The Son of God and Mary was a term as popular among heathens as it was foreign to the Jews, among whom Jesus was to remain the Messiah, only that he became also the Metatron. This explained to Jewish mystics the possibility of the second advent and gave a metaphysical foundation to the resurrection doctrine. The kingdom of heaven, or the theocracy, was another unintelligible idea to the heathen. Israel's laws and form of government were as odious and decried among the pagans as the hostility to that people was fierce and implacable. Paul made thereof a theological kingdom of heaven, when all the dead shall resurrect in spiritual bodies, and the living shall be changed accordingly, together with this earth and all that is thereon, and declared all the laws of Israel abrogated, so that only the spirit thereof, the precepts and not the laws, should be obligatory in the new state of society. The sins and wickedness of the world are forgiven to all who believe in the Son, and whose flesh is crucified with him, to resurrect with him in purity. For he died a vicarious atonement for all. He was the last sacrifice to blot out the sins of all who have faith in him. The crucified one did not resurrect merely in the spirit, of which the heathens could not form a satisfactory conception, because the immortality of the soul was by no means a general belief among them and their gods were no spirits. He resurrected in his very body, and was caught up to heaven, to sit or stand there at God's right hand, to come down again in proper time. Here, then, 
is your tangible proof of immortality he said to the heathens like the crucified one all of you will resurrect from the dead or be changed on the day of judgment this was plain language to heathens who knew that but lately caesar had been caught up to heaven as romulus was before him and asked no questions as to how a human body can rise in the atmosphere and become incorruptible none as to what means above or below up or down as to where god is and where he is not where his right hand where before and where behind him or as to whether the world is full of his glory no such questions were asked and there was the ocular demonstration of immortality tangible and intelligible to the grossest intellect end of section seven recording by linda johnson